Well, I'm delighted that I got Stephen Farrow and talking to Stephen who at Queen's Club, who is the director of international events and professional game at the LTA. And, but one of those responsibilities is tournament director at Queen's. And, and I think, Stephen, we're, we're in your uh, office and it's got to be the best office in, in sport, isn't it? Overlooking the, the famous centre court. It's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. You have to sort of pinch yourself. And, and every year we come back here and, um, you know, we open up this office the week before the tournament. And the fact that you know, within, you know, 10 yards of my desk, I've got this incredible 9,500-seater arena, like one of the very best arenas in tennis. It's, it's amazing. It really is. It's something very special. It's a serious upgrade in the tournament in the last couple of years. How hard has that been for you to, to I think, what, almost another three... 4,000 seats that you, you had to put in and, and a new court one for the 500 status? Yeah, so uh, two years ago we expanded the capacity um, and you know, really that's in response to the massive increased demand we'd had for, for tickets. I mean, a lot of that's driven obviously by Andy's success. Uh, but also, like you say, I mean, the upgrade to ATP 500 status in 2015, which has meant whilst this tournament's always had some of the best players in the world, it's just been even stronger. I mean, you look at the player field last few years and we've routinely had 17 or 18 top 30 players. So the strength in depth in the tournament is unbelievable. Um, and you know that creates increased demand. And so uh, for the 2016 tournament, 2017 tournament, uh, we increased capacity in a big way. That was a huge project. It was years. I mean, we, as a team, we worked on that for, for several years and involved relocating courts. Um, we've got new court one. We've got a new court five and six. Um, over on the far side of the site, and in terms of the building of the of the stands itself, it's a it's a much bigger undertaking. We've got another two thousand five hundred seats. Uh, we've got extra seats around Court One. Uh, we sort of revamped the hospitality at the same time. So there's been a lot of changes here over the last few years, and you know we're we're in really good sh- really good shape. Uh, great sponsor in Fever Tree, um, and um, you know we're looking ahead to another great year with even more fantastic players coming back. As a tournament director, I'm sure a lot of our listeners would like to know. How do you get the players? Is it a case of going to the very top ones and saying, this is what we'll offer you? Or is it more of the players actually want to play here? Well, we're, we're very fortunate because we have some of the best grass courts in the world. Uh, we're in that key week, two weeks before the Grand Slam. And so players always want to play that week. Um, and uh, players want to play here because the courts are so good. And it's, first of all, it's fantastic preparation for Wimbledon, as well as being a big tournament in its own right. So we've always got that advantage that players really want to play here. Um, and you know, there's lots of examples of players here who have played here as played here as young players, got wild cards as young players like Grigor Dimitrov, Marin Cilic and, and many others and you know have, have played the tournament I think Cilic has played it twelve times. You know, it's 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 that sort of loyalty that we get in the players because they love coming here so much. Um, I mean obviously for the very top players there's another great tournament our week in Halle. Um, you know, we we all both of us want the very best players to come to us and so yeah, there is a bit of comp- friendly competition there. But I think one thing we found over the years is there are a lot of great players to go around. Um, and Roger Federer has always played Halle. We've had Andy Murray. Um, you know, they've got, you know, Dominic Team goes there. Um, Alexander Zverev goes there. But in all honesty, we get pretty much everybody else. And so, you know, we're, we're very happy with the players that we get here every year. And this year's no exception. Well, you mentioned Andy, how great for the tournament. He's, he's won the singles five times, but that he's making his comeback playing doubles with uh, Feliciano Lopez. 
It's amazing. I mean, it's, it, is, it is fantastic news. It's, it's great for British tennis. Um, it's great for our event. And it's great for him as well. And, and um, you know, having sort of spoken to him a couple of times, I mean, he's, he's very relaxed. Um, the whole team just seems so happy that he's playing again. And, um, you know, after Australia, you know, we all watched what, what happened there, that unbelievable match that he, that he played there. Uh, and um, you know it wasn't looking too promising for for his career. Um, and the fact that he's going to be back, he's going to be back out there playing on centre court. The fact he's playing with Flitiano Lopez is just is almost ridiculous, really. It's like sort of your our dream doubles pairing, really, to have out there. And it's going to be really special when he uh, sets foot on that court again. Really special. I mean, as a tournament director, I've been so fortunate. I mean, my first two years as tournament director, he won it both times. Um, to be a tournament director of a British tennis tournament and to have the greatest British tennis player of all time win your tournament is you have to pinch yourself. I mean, it's been a very special period um, and he is such a, such a huge favourite and hero to everyone here and to have him back is, is going to be great. Well, as you said, you've got an incredible singles lineup. You've got Andy playing doubles. You've got Jamie, who's also playing doubles with yeah. Neil Skupski. So does that make it a lot more difficult for you in terms of the scheduling? Who, who you put on centre court? And I'm sure TV might want to see Murray play next week. Absolutely. There's already been a lot of clamour for, for Andy's doubles match. And you know, typically we would, um, you know, common with most tournaments, you, know, we, we, you would typically have prioritise the singles over, over the doubles I mean it's just the way it works on the tour and looking at the the quality of the players that we've got we've got some really big names who we may struggle to get on centre court over the first couple of days I mean you know the strength in depth of the lineup. you know we've got all the, the fantastic next gen players like um, Sissipas who's coming here for the first time Oje Aliasim also coming here for the first time we've got Alex Dimonor we've got Shapov- Denis Shapovalov who's, who's played here really well in, over the last couple of years and already is a bit of a favourite Favorite, favorite here, and then you've got Feliciano Lopez. We've spoken about we've got Marin Cilic coming back as our defending champion. Nick Kyrgios, Stan Wawrinka. I mean, these are really big names. Uh, Juan Martin Del Potro as well, who, who hasn't played for a few years through injury. Who we're really pleased will be back with us this year. So it does make scheduling difficult. I mean, it is actually the, the, the most challenging part of the week as a tournament director, particularly with a grass court event when, you know, players naturally, they, if it's their first competitive match on the surface, they're, they're, you know, they're, they've, they're a bit nervous about maybe playing first up or maybe playing last because they're not quite used to the surface yet, that sort of thing. It, it's, it's probably the most pressurised part of the week is doing that order of play for the first couple of days and making sure the players are comfortable with where they're playing. Um, and making sure we can sort of deliver the right lineup, and there's often some tough decisions. I mean, last year uh, we had a situation where one of Grigor Dimitrov, obviously champion, great favourite here, um, or Lopez, Feliciano Lopez, who was our defending champion, one of them had to go on centre, and one of them had to go on court one, and I had sort of sleepless night about that. And in the end, we Grigor, I put Grigor on centre and Feli on court one, and I was like praying that Feli won. He was playing David Goffin. Unfortunately, he did get through and he did end up coming out on centre court. But we have tough decisions to make because we've got so many great players. But that obviously is a problem I'm very happy to have to deal with. Well, I'm not, not going to get you to comment on the French Open because that would be unfair with, a, with another tournament. But you must have had sympathy with Guy Forget and the tournament director because sometimes you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. 
Absolutely. And and look, we all work in events and there are often loads of things that happen behind the scenes, which um, are the reason why you have to make certain decisions. <clears throat> and it may not be obvious to the public because uh, they might not have all the information. So, I mean, Guy's a great guy. I'm, I'm very sympathetic to him. I mean, we've we've had our moments here um, and, you know, often there are issues with particular players not wanting to play in particular courts where there's issues with um, managing the crowd um, there's all sorts of things that can influence a decision that you might have to make around scheduling so I am I'm always very sympathetic you're a very busy man and it's not just Queens that you're heavily involved in it's also a lot of the other British tournaments Fed Cup was key to you this the staging and so, so just so briefly give us a uh, your your the outline of your year and, and what it takes you and where it takes you and, and the decisions the why you have the Fed Cup at Bath and then the, also the Fed Cup at the Copper Box. Yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I mean, in my role, not just as tournament director here, the Fever Tree Championships, but I oversee all the LTA's events. Um, and um, obviously this time of year, we've got loads of events that we're putting on in a very short space of time. Um, and so as sort of you know, I've, I've been in uh, Manchester and Nottingham the past couple of days for coming to Queen's today. Um, and because um, we've got the tournament going in Nottingham, tournament going on in Manchester. We have a tournament going on in Birmingham next week, uh, WTA Premier event, which is a fantastic player field. Eastbourne as well, which is coming up. So it's a really intense period. Um, also the Challenger events in Surbiton, in Ilkley as well, which um, in Surbiton particularly last week, which attracted an absolutely unbelievable player field. I mean, to turn up and see Nick Kyrgios playing doubles, Alex Dimonor played in the doubles there. We had um, Lopez played in the singles. Dan Evans obviously won the title, played really, really well, which is fantastic to see. Uh, so it's an intense period right now. Um, and um, in terms of the rest of the year, <clears throat> well, I think having so many events in this period provides a fantastic platform for us to talk about tennis, the LTA to talk about tennis and everything we're doing to op open the sport up. But, but also, it, it does mean that our year is quite uneven. And um, we know that events drive interest in the sport. And so having events at other times of year is also really important to us. And that's one of the reasons why the LTA opposed the changes to Davis Cup. Because um, from, aside from any other reason, the fact of the matter is that we know the impact that we've had through the Davis Cup ties that we've had. And, and you look at 2015 when we had those amazing ties in Glasgow. We had the brilliant match against France here, which me and my team staged. Um, they, it was really, really special year, um, you know, and it increased the attention and visibility of the, of the sport. And so to lose the opportunities to have home ties is a big loss to us because those home ties were at different times of year. Um, and so the Fed Cup this year, which, which you mentioned, provided a great opportunity. And We've said for years that wouldn't it be brilliant if one day we could have a Fed Cup tile like we've had for the men. Uh, and so to stage the event in Bath, which was a really complicated event to stage. I mean, to have uh, eight teams there um, for the players, you know, you're playing an international match every single day. Finding a venue which could accommodate that event was very difficult. And um, you know, the guys in Bath um, worked with us, did, did a fantastic job. And then to emerge from that group, which is really tough and punishing for the players to have won through, and then to get the home tie again, um, which we had at the Copper Box um, in April, was great. And you know, we sold 12,000 tickets nearly over two days for women's tennis. Uh, that, that's the biggest audience that will watch. Uh, uh, well, it's, it's more than we get at Eastbourne. So you know, that's really big in its own right. And to see the atmosphere there, see the way the players responded, to see the enthusiasm for... for for women's tennis was, was brilliant. I mean, I took, my daughter came along to watch that. 
never really, I mean, she's nearly eight. She's never really shown much of an interest in watching tennis, even though she gets the opportunity to come here. Um, but she was absolutely transfixed watching Joe Conter in the Fed Cup tie. And, and uh, you know, it's that sort of thing where you're, you, when you get the opportunity to inspire kids in that way, and to, I've seen the sort of direct experience of that, it's, it's great. And, you know, we're all very proud to be able to provide that platform. Special venue. Hopefully you can use it in, in the future, maybe for a tournament, possibly. Well, I mean, Cobbox is, is great. I mean, we one of the drawbacks in this country in terms of, is that we don't have very many indoor venues that can accommodate tennis. Um, if you look at a lot of the newer arenas that are built, I mean, like, like for example, the one in, in Leeds, um, they are built and they're built for concerts rather than for and, and it's quite difficult to to um, to stage tennis. So we've got very few venues, which makes it challenging. But what you've got in the copper box is you've got a purpose built indoor venue, uh, which lends itself brilliantly to tennis uh, and um no, being it was it was great being on the Olympic Park. Uh, I mean, I sort of slightly had my doubts about going there because I sort of thought, well, you know, is is it a venue which people would be prepared to travel to? But actually, it is. I mean, you know, we had fantastic reaction to tickets. Obviously, they have West Ham playing there every every other week. Um, it's great facilities there. I, I'm sure we will be back out of that venue at some point. Talking about the success of this tournament, a couple of questions on going back to Queens. You know, a lot of people often ask. Any chance for a Masters event on grass? One day, potentially here at Queen's? Well, obviously I'd love it. Um, I think, uh, like most people, it, 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 it doesn't feel right that there isn't one on grass because it's the only surface where there isn't one. Um, and so, yeah, look, if there, was go- if there was ever going to be one on grass... obviously I'm biased but it would have to be here I mean this tournament is so prestigious great history um, so many top players love playing here from the past all the way up to the present day Um, as as a site there are there are minimum standards for Masters events which we would struggle to meet here in fact we couldn't meet them here so there'd have to be a few exceptions that would have to be made but if there ever were a Masters I'm sure it would be here we would love to see it here Uh, having said that personally I'm not sure it's going to happen anytime soon. I mean, if you look at the calendar, you've got Queens and Halle this week. Uh, both tournaments have loads of people go and watch. You've got loads of top players playing those tournaments. They're big events in their own right. Uh, the players are very happy. Um, so I, I don't see much of a push for it, really, from the player side, which I think is where it would need to come from. But if it ever did happen, then yeah, we'd obviously love to have it here. Well, as we're doing this interview, this normally would have been day two of your event until it got pushed back a couple of years ago when Wimbledon had an extra week's gap between the French and their championships. And I guess you're glad, given the weather that it is, was yesterday, is today, and also forecast for the rest of the week, that it has been pushed back. That would have been the ultimate nightmare, Stephen. Yeah, well, I've, I've been there. Look, I mean, I think it was last two years. Last two years, we've almost got slightly complacent because we've had two years of glorious weather and you tend to forget what it's like when you don't. But three years ago, um, we, I think it was three years ago when we, were, we, we completed one match. By five o'clock, I think, on the Tuesday, we completed one match. I think it was Steve Johnson beat Richard Gasquet out in centre court. And it was just one of those days where they went on at 12 o'clock and they were going on and off all day. They finally finished about 6.30. Gasquet lost. He wasn't particularly happy. I, I could understand why. Because uh, I think he was uh, one of our top seeds that year. Uh, and then we had no other matches even went on. 
And then on the Tuesday at about five o'clock, we, we sent out, I think we played on six courts and we still finished the tournament fine on time, but it creates so many difficulties. I mean, it is difficult to have a good time at an outdoor tennis event or any outdoor event when it's terrible weather. And you just feel so bad for the crowd and the great British public who will sit here all day with their umbrellas up in the hope that they'll see some play. Uh, you feel for them. You f- and you know, one of my one of the biggest jobs as tournament director. I mean, I actually remember Chris Kermo saying to me in my first year as tournament director. You know, your job is to try and keep morale up when it's raining. It's one of the key jobs as the tournament director. So, you know, it, when that happens, you know, you're going down to the player lounge, you're chatting to as many players as possible, trying to sort of keep people's morale up because. It's a pretty depressing place when the rain falls. But I, I'm looking at the weather forecast for next week. I think we'll be okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, if not, we'll, um, we'll just have to pray. Some might say if it rains, you make more money because people people's tend to spend more money on merchandise and, and maybe spend a little bit more time in the bar. But you well, want... actually don't. You, you actually... So if we've tested this, you actually don't. Uh, where you make the most money is when it's really hot because people buy lots of gin and tonics and pims and all that kind of stuff. Uh, hence the sponsor. Uh, hence the sponsor. When it's cold, they buy coffee and uh, it's not as profitable. <laughs> Going back to your role, how did it sort of start for you? Yeah, so I've come quite an odd route into the role I'm in now. I mean, I joined the LTA as a lawyer in 2010 uh, and um, I ended up very fortunate I've got the opportunity ended up as the legal director of the LTA but sort of concurrent to that I um, became very heavily involved in the events uh, and um, particularly working with Chris Kermode who is a very good friend of mine who got me involved in with Queens really in sort of 2012 2013 and then when Chris moved on to the ATP in the in September October of 2013 when he got the ATP job he recommended that I took over the event which was which was unbelievable and um, for some reason um, Michael Downey was the incoming CEO uh, and uh, Nick Humby was our COO at the time for some reason agreed and uh, so I did it for one year and for that year I was I was managing director of the tournament we brought in Ross Hutchins as our tournament director worked really well with Ross uh, and, which really helped because for me it's I didn't really know many players or anything like that so it was very good at that stage very good to work alongside Ross Ross then moved off across to the um, ATP because he retired from playing after that summer and so then I just took both roles on and it's just an immense privilege it really is and you know I think um, I mean this is such a special event and the opportunity to, to head this event and work with so many talented people. We have people who've worked on this event for 30 years. You know, John Hester, who um, is our site manager, lives in a caravan in the back compound, uh, comes in beginning of May. I mean, he's worked, I think he's done 30 years. Uh, our referee, Jimmy Moore's done 42 years. I mean, it's, it's a, we're really lucky. We've got fantastic strength and depth in our team. Um, and um, it's a privilege to work alongside them and also to sort of front up something that is so special. There's so many people who love this event, not just the people who work on it, uh, the spectators who come back every year and the players as well. And it's been really nice to build relationships with a lot of those guys like, like Grigor and Marin Cilic and, you know, and people like Nicola Mahu and, and Andy and who, who really care about this event really this is a really important part of their calendar and it's just just such a privilege to be involved well you mentioned chris commode and obviously successful tenure at the atp but that's coming to an end so what were your thoughts on that when sort of news broke a few months ago that chris's contract won't be renewed i think chris has been an absolutely fantastic uh executive chairman and president for the atp 
I think he's done a magnificent job. And actually, you look at any indicator, whether that's commercial revenue from a player perspective, it's prize money, player pension contributions. I think things like the next-gen finals, um, which has been a terrific success, and the spotlight that's put on that incredible cohort of young players who are coming through, which makes me really excited about the future of, of the ATP. Um, obviously, he was the driving force behind the ATP finals in London as well. I mean, he, he is a, he's, he's a great leader. He's got great charisma. I think he's done a fantastic job. I think it's a real shame. I think it was... Um, uh, very uh, as as a I mean I'm on the ATP tournament council uh, as tournaments I think it's a very difficult uh, decision for us to accept because it's a very difficult job I mean to be there between the players and the tournaments and uh, and to be able to try and uh, we often have very different perspectives on things and to be to be able to be like the arbiter in that in in those in those issues in the certain issues that come up things like prize money which can become very difficult conversations it's a it's a difficult job to do and it's a difficult job to find someone with the right skills to do and in Chris you we've had someone who's been who has those skills um having said all that I mean he's done six years it's a long time in that job it's a tough job uh, and he's done really well, uh, so um, so it's 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 a great shame. It really is a great shame. But you know, I think the main point I'd say is, is what a great job he's done, and the ATP would be really fortunate to find anyone with um, anywhere near his level of ability to fill that role. A job Steam Farrow would like in the future? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, look, it's a it's it's a really tough job. It's a really tough job. I mean, it's a fantastic role. Uh, the opportunity to to um, lead the such a fantastic organisation. But I'm very close to Chris. I've seen some of the things he's had to deal with and and how well he's had to deal with it. But but there are some real issues at times. And I also think that that in a role. It, in a role like that, and it's a bit like the role here in many ways, is that being able to really make a difference and really change something can be quite challenging. I mean, and I think one of the things I'm most proud of here at Queen's is is we've is me and, and the team and Emma Foster who heads our operations team and others, you know, and David Law, our media director, you know, we've taken something which is successful, but I really feel we've we've added to it with the seat expansion, the new sponsor, the upgrade to 500 status, all those sorts of things. It can sometimes be quite difficult to to in, in those sorts of roles to be able to make big achievements and look at what Chris has managed to do next gen finals atp finals atp cup as well which is coming up in january which is really exciting you know it just shows um it shows what a great ceo leader he's been but uh it's a it's a definitely a challenging role to fill so it'd be interesting to see where what happens next you mentioned the small touches maybe one of the reasons why your tournament has been voted five times out of the last six years as the 500 event on the atp calendar yeah i think um I, th- I think there's there's uh, there's lots of reasons really. I mean, I, I think the fact that our courts are so good. Uh, I mean, Graham Kimpton, who's the groundsman here, who's just just superb. I mean, what he manages to deliver for these players every year is is really something, um, and it's something that the players always talk about that the courts here are some of the best best in the world, and and I think that really helps. But I think there's just it's just the general atmosphere here. You know, we do do everything we can to make the players comfortable, and whether that is. Uh, you know, we've got all the things in the player lounge from the we've got cinema room. We've got barbers down there. You know, we one of the things that players praise a lot, which has always surprised me. Yeah, I was going like, to ask you, what do players want? Laundry, laundry. It's amazing. I mean, I also I, I've never understood this, but apparently our laundry service is amazing. Um, laundry's laundry, isn't it? <laughs> Drop it off, pick it up twenty four hours later. Exactly, but I think I think because it's free, and I think because it's quick. 
Um, it's always one of those things that has come up since I've been doing this job where people say, oh, what do you like most about Queen's? Well, the courts and uh, yeah, you know, you like the barbers and stuff, but the laundry's great. Like, okay. But anyway, so the laundry's important. We have uh, Fraser, our concierge down in the, in the player lounge as well, who's like, looking after the players, doing restaurant bookings, all those sorts of things. And, and I think the, the general atmosphere that we have here, and, and to go back to the point I made before, we've got a lot of people who've worked on this event for, for years. Um, Charlotte, who, who helps in, in, in the office here. Um, like I said, Fraser as well, who's, who's uh, it's our concierge. And so when the players are coming back, we always, it's a cliche that we always talk about, but it is like them sort of coming home. And, and people like Grigor and Marin, um, Feli and all those guys, I mean, they know, the st- they know a lot of the staff here. You know, they know people by their first name because they've been coming back for so many years. And I think that general atmosphere that we managed to create is, is the reason why players vote for the tournament to be tournament of the year, which, which, is, which is amazing. I mean, you know, we've won it a number of times, but we don't take it for granted. And it's a real, something that the team really value. We're really proud to have received those awards. Well, Stephen, I know you're very busy and I know you're itching to get your high-vis jacket and your, and your, your hat back on to go and look at the works. Just, just last question. Um, must be very proud, and I think Ross is very proud, that obviously the new trophy this year, which is the Paul Hutchins trophy, which is going to be Great Britain against America, the, the juniors, but also on top of that, the wheelchair event, which this year will be points included for the run to the Olympics next year. Yeah, so wheelchair tennis, uh, fantastic. I mean, I, I've always, um, I've, I've always been quite close to the guys at the Tennis Foundation. Now the LTA run our wheelchair performance program. Um, I, I've always said that I, it's something that we wanted to have here, and we had an exhibition last year for the first time. Gordon Reed and Alfie Hewitt are two of the best ambassadors for our sports, let alone wheelchair tennis. They they both speak so well. Um, they're fantastic players and, and, and what they've achieved in Grand Slam success, Paralympic success. They just won the World Team Cup a few weeks ago um, as well. Um, they're, it's great to provide a platform for those guys here. So really looking forward to having them back. The fact it's an ITF event with ranking points so it is, is even, even better. So you know, I, I'm a big believer because that also comes under me at the LTA, the wheelchair tennis events. I want to integrate wheelchair tennis into our events so far as possible. Obviously, there's practical considerations about that, but we're really lucky on the wheelchair side that we've got these great ambassadors. Um, and on the women's side as well, with Lucy Shuka, Jordan Wiley as well. So any way we can showcase what they can do uh, alongside our existing events is something that we should be doing if we can. Um, and actually, you know, you watch the, the, the wheelchair here. I mean, the, it's, it's a really high standard. It's a really good watch. So I'm really pleased those guys are coming back. And then as far as the junior event goes, I've wanted to do something like that for, for years. We used to have a junior event here years ago. Um, just the way the junior calendar has worked, it's been, it's been difficult to get the players over because there's always been a week's gap between our event and the Roehampton junior event. This year, there's the Nottingham junior event the week after us, which has meant that we've been able to stage this, this challenge match. Um, which I was delighted to name after Paul, um, someone I was very close to, a very good friend of mine. Uh, we, you know, we, we really miss him, but to be able to honour him in this way, he loved watching the juniors uh, and he also was our legendary Davis Cup captain, uh, loved the international team competition. So to be able to marry the two, to name it after him, uh, is, is really special for all of us. So we're really looking forward to that getting underway as well. Stephen, thanks very much for talking to us. Well, really good, Baza, that you were able to have time with uh, Stephen when he's uh, such a busy man, obviously leading into the latest Queen's tournament. But uh, interesting, a number of things that he mentioned in that interview, obviously 
from the point of view of um, being a Masters event and whether they would ever have a Masters on grass. And he kind of played down that the, the chances of that, although obviously Queens would snap it up, the opportunity if they were given it. But it, it seems an almost impossible one to solve that because there is an equally strong field, you know, over in Haller every year. It's a, a 500 event as well. How do you combine it? And yet the grass court season is worthy of it, isn't it? Yes, uh, I think I'm along with a lot of people that would love to see a Masters event on grass because for me, what makes the Masters so appealing in, in, with Monte Carlo, Madrid and Rome, it's a build-up to the French. Also, the same thing for me is when you have Montreal or Toronto and Cincinnati to build up to the US Open. Paris, the back end of, of the year, is a build-up to the O2. I think that's where the Masters really come into their own. Um, but it just, it, the old chestnut about the calendar, unless they totally rip up the calendar, I just don't see it, it, it possible. And, you know, which one would you decide, Haller or, or Queens? Interesting, actually, that Haller's got a stronger draw this week than, than Queens, which, which is surprising because usually it's Queens that, that tops that. Um, you know, Queens, as great as it would be, doesn't necessarily have, and Stephen talked about the infrastructure to be able to hold a Masters, but uh, there would be the will, I think, that wouldn't that be from the British public? I think so, absolutely. There would be, there'd certainly be the demand for it. But I would imagine that, you know, in Germany as well, they would, they would love to have something, having lost a Masters in Hamburg a few years ago. Yep. Um, I mean, you, you never know, maybe in the future they, they, might get, they might get that clay court Masters back. Well, it turns out that Stefanos Tsitsipas is not only making his debut, at uh, Queen's this year, but he's going to be the top seed. And uh, looking at the draw in the singles, of course, you've got well an amazing draw, really, even if there aren't absolutely the tip-top names there necessarily, because they do have seven of the top 20. He's up against Carl Edmund at the start. I mean, that's uh, some draw against the, the British number one. But in that same quarter, you've got um, Kyrgios against Manorino, who's just won that title over in Holland. Uh, his first ever title, great for the the uh, Frenchman to do that. Obviously, the Australian on grass will be hoping to uh, do a bit better than he did a few days ago, but certainly has the talent to do that. And the winner of that match to take on either Grigor Dimitrov or Felix Auger Aliazim, who was runner up to uh, Berrettini in Stuttgart. So uh, there's real quality in that top section. And you've got the likes of Del Potro, obviously, Marin Cilic, defending champion, Kevin Anderson as well, coming back after injury. And look at that matchup between Stan Vavrinka against Dan Evans. It, it's still a, a pretty remarkable lineup. Yeah, it is. I mean, just mentioned about OJ Ali. He's 11th on the race. I mean, that is an extraordinary performance this year from the young Canadian. I mean, that's, that's eclipsing what City Pass did at this time last year. So you wonder what he could achieve for, for the rest of the year. And, you know, just following on what I said in terms of the, the you know, Haller being the stronger draw, it is in terms of ranking. Three of the world's top 10 compared to Queens, two of the world's top 10 at Queens. But when you look at, as you mentioned, those names, Barry, they are better grass court players, aren't they? They've got better pedigree on that surface. Del Potro, Cilic and Raonic. Raonic, who pulled out um, this week in Stuttgart with a back injury. It's his 10th walkover that, he, in, that he's on the main tour and also add in another five retirements. Vavrinka, interesting, you see, he's working with Danny Valverde. He's going to join the team. And Dimitrov, I mean, he, he played a little bit better, didn't he, towards the end of that clay court season, but he will fill now with his grass court pedigree. So I think that the, those, the list of those players, along with 
Kevin Anderson, who's only playing his fourth tournament this year, it really has been a tough 2019. So I'm, I'm fascinated to see how Queens is going to develop. Is one of those players going to put in a good performance to match the big three? And for me, they are the big three going to Wimbledon and Djokovic and Nadal and Federer. Those, those three have separated themselves from the rest of the pack. Um, but which one of the others can really get some matches under the belt and, and potentially have a great run at Wimbledon? Marin Cilic, champion, defending the title again, but he hasn't had the great uh, start to this season. He obviously had a very good finish to last year, the Davis Cup title that Croatia won. I see that he's now linking up for the grass court swing with uh, our old buddy Wayne Ferreira, former top 10 player, who's going to be helping him try to just sort of find uh, that extra edge back on the grass again. What do you make of that? I think it's a great appointment. I mean, we've come to like Wayne. We've worked with him. I think his tennis IQ is very smart. I mean, he, uh, he, he had a great record against Pete Sampras, Wayne. And I think that that's a smart move from, from Chilich because I think he needed to add someone to his team because he has had a difficult year with injuries. But also... Do you think he's looked a little stale? Maybe. I think every now and again in your career, you sort of reach that crossroads. I think the highs of winning the Davis Cup last year, I think that was a huge moment for Chilich. Also the heartache of a couple of big losses in major finals, um, having won obviously the US Open a few years back. So I think, I think that's a, a uh, partnership that absolutely makes sense for me. Talking of injuries, of course, from a British point of view, the return of said Andy Murray, to uh, the doubles, at least, at Queen's Club, where he's won more singles titles than anybody ever before. That's some partnership with him again and Feliciano Lopez. And who do they get first up but the top seeds in the draw? Cabal and Farah. I think Andy, didn't he mention a couple of days ago, he thought it was almost written in the stars that he was going to play yes. Jamie first round. <laughs> well, um, they could play in the, in the top half at some point, couldn't yeah. they? But, they, I mean, to get over that first hurdle against the top seeds, that, that's some ask, although... Who do you think would be the more nervous about it, Andy and Feliciano or, or the top seeds taking on two guys like them? Uh, well, at least he's not going to be as nervous as he was apparently yesterday at Wentworth playing in the club championships, Andy. Did you see that? It was hilarious. He shot 101, and Andy's a good golfer. He shot 101, had three shanks on the first tee. He can, he can serve for a Wimbledon title, and he can win majors, but he goes weak at the knees in the, in the golf championships. Well, good luck to him. I mean, it is just a great story if this is the start of a full return to competitive tennis that we hope will include the singles later in the year because that's what he was saying in the week, wasn't it? That he's now encouraged enough to think that he will be back playing singles sometime after the US Open. Yeah, that's everything that I thought was going to happen. Once, once he made that decision to have the op after the Australian Open, and when we go, he played amazing tennis against Bautista Agut of Melbourne, didn't he, Barry? I mean, he lost in five sets. Bautista Agut, who'd beaten Djokovic, what, a few, what, 10 days before to win Doha, um, well, beat him in the semis and then won Doha. And the one thing that, as long as for Andy, I think there's two, two crucial factors, is that he's still got the will, which he clearly has, and he's still got, he's still as pumped as ever. And he likes to prove people wrong. And he will prove a lot of people wrong if, if he gets back playing singles and what he doesn't know. And I think he will learn a lot from Queens. And I think he'll also learn a lot from Eastbourne. And, and hopefully, you know, he can, he can play back-to-back -back matches, even though it's to start with doubles, is how he is the next day. And that's going to be the hardest part. When you're playing three, four, five matches in succession, 
is your body able to stand the, the test of, you know, full potentially two and a half hours, three hours back to back? You mentioned Jamie playing perhaps against him, obviously now partnering Neil Skupski. What do you make of that new team? I think if I must add, I felt last year that Bruno and Jamie looked a little flat. And it's interesting because I might, my, my thing that I often ask for doubles players. I don't understand why they split up so quickly. You know, that they have a great year and all of a sudden they split. I mean, Marek and Pavic have split. Now, who would have thought that, having seen them for a couple of years, where they just played unbelievable tennis? But may, maybe I think they just feel that they need to freshen it up and, and to keep everything new. And, and, and maybe for Jamie, he felt that that was what was required. Um, I mean, they're still... Still best mate. I mean, he's done well, Bruno Suarez, because he's now playing with Pavic. I mean, that I think they could potentially be a very dangerous partnership. But Neil and, Neil and Ken Skupski have done brilliantly. I mean, they've had a, a phenomenal year. But when you have the opportunity to go with Jamie, which Neil has, has had, and he's, he's, a talented, he's a talented doubles player. I mean, he could, I, I think those two could, could do very well on the grass. But it's going to be difficult all of a sudden as a scratch pair to light it up on grass. I think sometimes it's a little easier to maybe when you're starting fresh is to maybe play on the slower surfaces just to get a bit of rhythm because it's so quick fired. So that, so I, I think, I think it might be tough soon at Wimbledon. Well, while the focus on the men's tour over the next week will definitely be at Queens and at Halle, of course you have to uh, turn to Birmingham in the Midlands in England to uh, see the world's top three all in action at the uh, Nature Valley Classic in Birmingham. What a lineup with Naomi Osaka there, Ash Barty there as well, the new French Open champion, and uh, Pliskova, Karolina Pliskova has got a wild card into the draw. So that does mean the top three are all competing. It's a, it's a heck of a lineup. And uh, of course, Britain's Joe Conta, the seventh seed up against Annette Kontovit in her opening round. But uh, that's a, a remarkable grouping of, of players and, and great to see that kind of uh, staging uh, at this stage going towards Wimbledon. Yeah, it's going to be a lovely moment, isn't it, for Barty to be able to step onto court. It'll be the first time that she plays with uh, the, the PA announcer saying, Ash Barty, French Open champion. That's got to be good hearing for, for Barty when she, just before she starts her first match. But yes, yeah, three players in my mind that absolutely can win Wimbledon in Osaka, Barty and Pliskova. I'm looking forward to seeing how Osaka plays on the grass this year. Her success so far has been on the hard court, those two major wins and, and also the big title in, um, in Indian Wells. Yeah, and then throw in Svitolina and Zabalenka. It's a remarkable lineup in Birmingham. And if you look at the opening rounds that the top three have got, I mean, by no means certainty that they, they will get through because Osaka's up against Maria Sakari, the young Greek who's, who's clearly taking a, a lot of players in her stride already, a, a real force to be reckoned with. Donna Vekic, who just lost out to uh, Caroline Garcia up in Nottingham to take on Ash Barty. That's going to be some showdown between those two. And then you've got Michaela Buzanescu from Romania taking on Karolina Pliskova. What are the odds on one of those, the big three losing first round? Pretty good odds. Yeah, I mean, you'd say probably the chance of the biggest upset would probably be Vekic beating Barty. I think often when you win a title, if she had one today, Vekic, and unfortunately losing 7-6 in the third, but if she had one, actually sometimes it's a lot harder to come back the next week. But when you've lost a final and you're smart, and you just want to get back onto court straight away. So that's the best chance to be able to take out Ash Barty, 
Um, so I think there's a chance that one of those three will lose first round. Maybe a sock as well you could throw into the mix. I think it's great to see also that Ash Barty is also entered in the doubles. Mm. She's playing with Yulia Gerges. So, I mean, we, we talked about her prowess in singles, obviously, with what she's just achieved in Paris. But the fact that she's willing to play, I, I guess, get more time on the grass in her first event back since Roland Garros. But it, it's, it's just nice to see one of the top players doing that. Uh, and also great for Harriet Dart, the young British player, to be teamed up with Venus Williams in the doubles. Mm, yeah, well, she played great last year, Harriet Dart, didn't she, in the mixed? Yeah. Played some, some great tennis with um, Jay Clark. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, going back to Ash Barty, I think it sends the right message as well that she's playing singles and doubles. It's almost to say, well, what happened a couple of weeks ago is gone. Mm-hmm. I mean, we relate to Simona Halep last year after she won the French. I, mean, I don't know if you shared the view, Barry, but I, I always felt that following that victory at the French, finally winning her first major, she was going to go through a very difficult period because when you've, when you've sort of been wrestling with trying to win your first slam, that inevitably when you do get over that finishing line, you can, you can have a, a period of adjustment and it can take a while. And that, that would be the a kind of the, the question mark for Barty coming up now. But, but, but by playing the singles and doubles, it's to say, right, yeah, I mean business now. I'm going to tackle this grass court period as if, as if the French Open, yes, it was, it was amazing what I achieved, but that is in the past. One other match, uh, just to, to mark everybody's card, if they haven't already seen, that in, in the draw in Mallorca, potential for Angelique Kerber, the top seed there, to be taking on Maria Sharapova in the second round as Maria makes a long-awaited return. Yeah, um, and probably a smart move, actually, from Sharapova to play Mallorca instead of playing Birmingham. And as a 17-year-old, uh, when winning Wimbledon, Birmingham was where it all started out for her. So it's always been a tournament close to her heart. And she needs matches, absolutely. She needs to be able to play three or four matches in quick succession to, to have a serious chance of having a good run at Wimbledon at the moment. Just the lack of tennis is going to count against her. Now, two other points have, have really kind of raised their head this week in, in terms of... Head-to-head records from the Laver Cup, which was, and still, well, up to now, has been an exhibition event primarily, and yet they're being included in the official ATP head-to-head records. Now, of course, that the Laver Cup has got the endorsement of the ATP. What do you make of that? Well, in my mind, it still is an exhibition event, uh, and in my mind, it always will be, and in my mind, Hopman Cup was always an exhibition event. I, I loved the Hopman Cup. I thought the Hopman Cup was, was great. I thought it was a nice fit. So it's not, I'm not putting the, the events down. Same thing with Labour Cup. I think what we see in the last couple of years is, has been brilliant. But they are exhibition events. That is not, for me, they are not matches on the tour. Uh, and I'm, I'm strongly against it. I actually saw a very funny tweet saying, breaking news, they are now counting the scores at Necker Island, Richard Branson's tournament <laughs> as official head-to-head. You know, where do you stop? And you know, it's interesting you mentioned that the ATP are counting Labour Cup but don't count Hopman Cup. But the ITF count Hopman Cup for the head-to-heads. It's a mess, really. Well, again, it's the, it's the power yeah. struggle, isn't it, that, that, that continues to go on, that, to which we've referred to numerous times over the past few weeks and months on the podcast. But the other issue, which I know is something that you're, you're vehemently opposed to, but again, it, it seems that this whole idea of coaching from the sidelines will be allowed this year at the US Open. I mean... Is that just another step too far for you? Yeah, I've been very vocal on my, I don't like it. I'm against it. I, I think it is, it is a sport that is gladiatorial and 
I think the best matches are the ones where players get in the zone and are able to just run with the momentum. And it's a lot easier to do that if, you're, if, you, if it's just you. If you're forever looking at your coach and wanting advice, I just think at times it can confuse things. Of course it can help. And there have been instances where it has been a huge success, hasn't it? Kazakina last year was at Moscow. She brought the coach on. Um, Andrescu, when she won spectacularly in Indian Wells, that was one of the best, um, you know, a minute or so from the advice that she had from a coach. I, I think if the coach hadn't given that advice, maybe she wouldn't have won the match. But I think those are two are two incidents that that are uh, a positive. I think more often than not, it, it doesn't really add anything. I think also confusing when you're as a viewer, uh, and also when you're commentating when the coach is speaking a different language. So yeah, I, I'd much rather hear coaches being interviewed. I'd much rather. In, I, I'm not a fan of pre-match interviews, Barry. As well, I know you know we've done both. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you share my view on that. No, I agree. I, I think it's very difficult to to stand up to a, an interview just before you're about to go on and play for the players to come up with anything much than than just platitudes and and you know they want to get through it as quickly as possible. They're not going to divulge their innermost secrets or plans or how they really are preparing for that. Yeah, and so for me, I think there should be the coaches have to talk. I think pre-match, two or three questions, like they do in, in you know the Premier League football. And I think the coach has to do at least one, probably just one interview, but at least one interview during the match. And it has to be two questions or three questions, and it has, has to last for a minute. I think that's going to add more to the viewer than, than a coach coming on. And, and, you know, where do you draw the line as well? I mean, you know, there are probably 95% of the coaches that are, are well-dressed, but, you know, the coach comes out or it's your mother or it's your, you know, it's your best mate or he comes down in flip-flops or, you know, where do you draw the line? I think, I think the sport has got to be something that is really clean and I think it's a lot cleaner if it's, if it's the coach being interviewed. I mean, clean's one way of putting it. I, I think just clear cut in terms of you know exactly what is going to come up in terms of what to expect there seems to be this growing fragmentation this more sort of disjointed nature these you know one body deciding it's going to do it Mm. one way another grand slam doing it another way you only have to look at the way now all four slams do the final set differently to each other in terms of whether they have a tie break or not if they have a tie break what kind of tie break is it and when will it be enforced so it, it, it seems to me sort of a worrying move away, this fragmentation, and, and it kind of underlines the malaise in the sport right now as to who really is running Yeah, I it. think it's a very good point. And, and for me personally, I'm against the best of three set finals in Masters. You know, I think it would be, it would be great if, let's say, Indian Wells or Miami were best of five or, or one of the clay court. But actually, when you look at it as a whole, if you are the viewer, you know... When they changed the rule, what was it? Probably would have been around 11 years ago, 12 years ago now. You know, as a viewer, it's best of three, final. You're, you, mm-hmm. you know, there's no, there's no, well, is this best of three or best of five? And I, I absolutely agree with yes. you, Barry. You know, I think, I think when the viewer knows what is going to happen, I think that's better viewing than, than sort of being, you know, in doubt. I mean, I, you know, I was, I was at a, a local tournament today, a junior tournament today, and I was talking to a few parents about, Wimbledon and some, you know, they're involved in the sport. They didn't even know that Wimbledon was a tiebreaker 12 all in the fifth. 
you know, not everyone is is living on social media and keeping up with with breaking news. So, you know, you, there will be a lot of viewers. You know, could you imagine centre court first day, and it gets to twelve all? There will be a lot of a lot of pl- people in the in the stands watching, thinking, "Oh, well, we might have another." Um, isn't a Kevin Anderson not knowing that actually it's going to be a tiebreaker at twelve all? Yeah, there's a lot to discuss. A lot that is going to be discussed in the light of uh, what happens over. At Wimbledon and of course in the, the next couple of weeks leading up to it. Baz, thanks very much for your interview with Stephen and indeed for your thoughts since and uh, thank you for listening. We'll be back with uh, another Tennis Takeaway podcast next week. 